Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. We are starting a brand new series today to kind of prepare our hearts and prepare us for the Advent. Advent means coming, and it's the first coming of Jesus, which was his birth, and so the nativity story. And uh, for over 1,400 years leading up to the birth of Jesus, people were looking for a Messiah. People were searching for a Savior, which is the whole title of this series. And so I'm going to, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at some characters that are mentioned in the Christmas story, but they're kind of on the peripheral. We're not going to necessarily look at Joseph or Mary. We're going to look at some of the characters that kind of hover around the Christmas story, but they were searching they were searching for a savior. They were looking for a Messiah. We're going to land in Luke's gospel, but I'm going to make a couple of pit stops in the Old Testament before we get there because there's eight or so Old Testament prophecies that have to do with the coming of that Messiah or really the birth of Jesus. All right? And, and the first one really goes back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 is in the beginning. God created Genesis chapter 2 is God created man and woman. And Genesis chapter 3 is what we call the fall of men. It's the famous story where Adam and Eve ate the apple. Well, they, didn't eat the, they ate the fruit. God said, here's this tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can have all these other trees out here, but just reserve this one for me. And really, it was just a test of obedience. Just, hey, just, just don't. And, and then, of course, you know, my kid's children Bible says this sneaky snake got involved and convinced Eve to eat the fruit, and she did what most women do to us, you know, got us all okay. And so Adam and Eve ate the fruit. So in Genesis chapter three, they had eaten the fruit and God is now dealing with Adam and Eve and this sneaky snake or, or the serpent. And in that handing out judgment, we get, we get just, just a hint, just a hint that someday someone is gonna come and gonna fix all of this. This is the first of those eight prophecies, of, or there's actually over 55 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, but this is just one of the first ones because it's early in the Bible, Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And, and so he's talking to the serpent, but really he's talking to, to Satan, to Lucifer, the one that put the sneaky snake up to it. So Genesis three fifteen it says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Let's be real. Like, that's, that's pretty vague language. You know what I'm saying? He, he could just be talking about snakes are of the devil. Amen? You know what I'm saying? He could just be prophesying that someday people are going to invent a shotgun and do what they need to do to snakes. You know what I'm saying? Because the only good snake is a dead snake. Don't even start that with me. Mm-mm. I mean, if the devil's animal of choice was a snake, that should tell you something. But I think he was a second choice because I think the cat was too stubborn. Like, do it yourself. Oh, my God. I'm going to rub against a box. You know what I'm saying? So we have, the, we have the beauty of hindsight. Here in 2022, we can read the commentaries and we can see this. And so through that, we have the beauty of going, oh, that's prophetic. You know what I'm saying? But I don't, I don't know that when you look at that, it's just very clear that, oh, yeah, 
There it is. Jesus is going to be born in a manger. Like the verse just kind of hints at someday, somewhere, someone is going to come along and, and kind of, it's not, it's not very definitive, all right? But what we will discover throughout the Old Testament is every new prophecy or every prophecy that comes along that unpacks the birth of the coming Messiah or unpacks the details just gives you just, just a little more information, just a little more detail. Just, just here's just a little, it just becomes a little more clear. Okay, And so there is one who is coming who would be a prince of peace, he would be a savior, and he would be a messiah. At the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 49, you get your first clear definitive, oh, okay, so we are, it's not just a hint, We're, we get this clear promise from God, or we get this clear prophecy, if you will, that someone is coming that's going to clean this whole mess up. And that's what I want to show you. I want to show you Genesis chapter 49, that definitive prophecy about the coming Messiah. So what's going on in the context of Genesis chapter 49? If you remember, God had made a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons would become the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel because there's 12 tribes of Israel and all of them are named after the sons of Jacob. And so Jacob is on his deathbed and he, and he just brings all of his sons in front of him and he pronounces a blessing on them. And it's in that pronouncing a blessing that he prophesies, if you will, he gives us this insight that there is coming a day that someone is going to come and fix all of this, all right? So if you're ready, say, I'm ready. I got a lot of problems with you people. Sorry, I just thought I'd throw some George Costanz in there. So, you know, best of us for the rest of us. Genesis chapter 49, I normally read out of the New Living Translation. I'm gonna borrow this out of the New American Standard just because I, I like the verbiage, the word usage that it does, and I, and I like some of the clarity that it brings. So Genesis chapter 49, verse eight, he says, and, and again, this is Jacob blessing, and through that blessing, he's prophesying over his son Judah, your brothers will praise you. I'm gonna jump to verse 10. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, until, and then this is the only time in the Bible this word, in the English we call it Shiloh, in Hebrew it actually be pronounced with a long E, Shiloh, okay? He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, like we don't even use scepter in modern vernacular today. I mean, it's sure it's a word we know and can understand. It really refers to the king's scepter, if you will. But the implication here, and one of the translations just comes out and says it, the right of a ruler or the right to rule will not leave Judah. So let me kind of put it in the Brent Kellogg version, the BKV, Genesis 49 verse 10 is saying Israel will rule itself until Shiloh comes. And that's what you're looking for. Like when Israel no longer rules itself, 
then you're looking for this Shiloh person, if you will, okay? And in that day, when Shiloh comes, all right, and so let's talk about that meaning of that word, and commentators will tell you, well, we, we think it means this, we think this is what Jacob was saying, but we're, real, we're really not exactly sure. And so the way that they come to that is they go to the root. What, what built this word? What words are, are, are make up this word Shiloh? if you will, and it comes from the word, and it's real similar, shallow, it's just spelled just a little bit different. And shallow actually means prosperity, peace, and security. So what Jacob's doing, and he's like, the scepter will not depart from you until Shiloh comes. And when he says Shiloh, he's saying, the person who brings peace, tranquility, prosperity, when that person comes, and so in this moment, he gives this prophecy. All right, so Pastor Kelly told me I needed to wear my sweater vest because I was talking to him about my sermon. I said, I got a little history in there. I know some of you are having some Daniel PTSD. If you're new, like we took 73 weeks to walk through the 12 chapters of Daniel, okay? Like you open up your Bible and you wanna read something else, but it just automatically opens to Daniel and you turn the page and it still goes back to Daniel. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of where we're at as a church, but it was really good. Amen. Thank you. I'm stop. I want your pity. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little bit of history. All right. And so, you might have to check on your neighbor in just a second. There was a monk that came on the scene by the name of Dionysius Exiguus. And if any of you are gonna have a baby, Exiguus is a not a strong name. I don't don't go there. Your teacher Exiguus. Like your teachers won't even know how to. Can I get an amen from the teachers? Like how do you say that name? Okay. And so Dionysius, I don't know that he set out to change history, but he did. And he just wrote one statement, and there's, I, I deleted this out of the message because I had like three pages going into all the fun. Okay, some of you wouldn't think it's fun. I think it's fun. As to why he made this statement, but he was writing a paper, and, and, and a lot of times they would use political figures to date things. Like even in Luke's gospel, he'll say, this guy was leading, this guy was ruler, this guy was ruler. Dionysius is, is he's, he's writing something and it's almost a little bit of an act of rebellion against the pagan Romans and he makes this statement in his writing, okay? And he said, well, the present year was 525 years since the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he said, okay? We don't think he intended to change history, but he did so Dionysius never gave his explanation of where he came up with 525 years, but it just kind of stuck. And by the way, the modern tracking, the, the date tracking counting system that we use today is called Anno Domini, okay? And it, we, so today, for example, is December the 4th, 2022, A.D., Anno Domini, it's not A.D. after death, that's not what that means, Anno Domini. Anno is, is the Latin word for year, we get the word annual, you have to have your annual physical or do this on an annual basis, is where we get that annual from Anno, and then Domini was a Latin word for, for God. So Anno Domini is the year of the Lord, so December 4th, 2022, year of our Lord, Okay. The problem is Dionysius was wrong by just, just, just a couple of years. He was wrong. And I'm going to show you how and where we think he was wrong. All right? 
but we're still using this counting system that he just kind of said, well, it's been 525 years since the incarnation of our Lord. All right, so here's where he was wrong. In Matthew chapter two, Matthew makes the statement that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, all right? That King Herod, when you compare it to other historical documents, that King Herod died in what would be 4 BC, okay? So you see, if, if Dionysius said, okay, well, this is year zero, but Matthew says that King Herod was still alive, then Dionysius missed it by four years. If that makes sense, say, all right. Okay, got about a third of you with me. It's, it's great, okay. So if he died in 4 BC, that means Dionysius missed it by just a little bit in his calculation. Why is that important? Because I'm gonna show you, and it's gonna feel a little bit like one of those moments in Daniel where you're like, get on with it, and you're like, oh, that's cool, all right? I hope it feels that way. It did to me when I discovered this. All right, so the prophecy, Genesis chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah will rule itself, okay, until Shiloh comes, right? That was the prophecy. So the scepter means Israel's gonna rule themselves. And when that goes away, you can be looking. You can expect for Shiloh, the one who brings peace and prosperity and security, you can expect him to come. All right, under foreign conquerors, meaning the Babylonians or the Medo-Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, many times they would use Jewish people to help rule the Jewish people. Like Daniel was even one of those guys. Okay? They would take Jewish people to help govern. Now these Jewish people had to be loyal to the Persians. They had to be loyal to the Babylonians. They had to be loyal to the Greeks and the Romans. But in some way, the Jewish people would, are allowed to somewhat govern Jewish people. And there were some decisions that they just left up to them. We, I don't, we don't care what you do. A lot of it revolved around their religious rules. We don't, we don't care we just wanna make sure you pay your taxes. We wanna make sure that you obey our important Babylonian or Roman laws, okay? Until 7 AD. In 7 AD, the Romans took their last little bit of self-rule away. Nope, you can no longer make those decisions. Nope, Rome's gonna decide everything for you. They lost their last little bit of freedom, meaning the scepter was completely gone. They no longer had any control or rule over themselves and the scepter was completely gone. History, this is not in scripture, but history tells us when that happened. At the time, the rabbis, the Jewish scholars of the day would walk the streets of Jerusalem and they would weep and they would grieve. They believed the greatest prophecy of the Old Testament was unfulfilled. Genesis 49. It was the first clear prophecy that there would be one, there would be a Shiloh that would bring peace and prosperity and security and tranquility. But now the scepter was completely gone. The scepter had passed and they had not seen Shiloh. They had not seen the Messiah. And history records that they would say this, they would stand in the streets and just cry, woe unto us for the scepter has been taken away from Judah and Shiloh has not come. Woe unto us. For the scepter has been taken away from Judah and Shiloh has not come. But Jesus was alive. 
It was 7 AD. And most scholars think that Dionysius got it wrong by somewhere from at least four years because of King Herod, but most think from five to six years. I'm a six-year guy because once you put the astrological, a hard word, the star records, the astrology records, once you do all that, there were some things that happened in 6 BC. And so I think Jesus happened right in, was born in 6 to 5 BC. So when you take that 5 and 6 BC and you add it to 7 AD, that means in 7 AD, in part of that year, Jesus was 12 years of age. You know what happens in Jewish culture when a child turns 12? They're no longer a child. They have a bar mitzvah, and that is not just a fancy word for a cool birthday party. The boys have a bar mitzvah, the girls have a bat mitzvah, and it is, yes, they have a big celebration, but it is a symbolism of you are transitioning from adolescence into adulthood. 7 AD, the Romans, Romans took all of their self-control away. No, You can't make any decision for, no, 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 no. And in 7 AD was the year I believe Jesus was bar mitzvahed. He transitioned from being an adolescent into a man. And 7 AD was the year that Jesus became a man. The same year that they lost their self. So the same year the scepter was gone. The same year that the scepter was gone. You can be looking for Shiloh. Because of Genesis chapter 3, your offspring will strike his heel and Eve's offspring will crush his head because of a dying old man's blessing over his son in Genesis chapter 49. When the scepter passes from Israel, you will see the one who brings peace and security and tranquility. A hopeful nation will be looking for a Messiah and searching for a savior. Can I get an amen? I kind of thought y'all would be a little more wowed by that. First service stood up and applauded. It was awesome and y'all just like, oh, it's fine. And the Jews are still searching for Messiah. They're still looking for Messiah. That's a huge difference between Christianity and the Jews is we believe that Jesus is our Messiah. What's funny is the guys that were weeping and wailing in the streets, woe to us, the scepter's been taken and we don't have our Messiah. He was there, he was transitioning from a boy into a man. So today I wanna take a look at John the Baptist. And by the way, he's not to be confused with John the disciple. Those are two different characters, okay? And Luke's gospel, and we're gonna look at three or four different passages in Luke. Luke's gospel begins with an older priest by the name of Zechariah and his wife by the name of Elizabeth. If they were today, it'd be Zach and Beth, but that's fine, right? Okay, and so it's the telling of how John the Baptist even came to be. So in Luke's gospel, chapter one, he starts with this story, all right? Luke 1, 6, it says, Zechariah, you guys with me? Say amen. Okay, Zechariah and Elizabeth, I was afraid the whole history thing, <laughs> check on your neighbor. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old, okay? That's how the New Living Translation says they were both just very mature in their age. You know, they kind of softened it up a little bit. Other translations have a lot less tact. Right? One translation says they were both well stricken in their years. That's a little aggressive, coming in a little hot, you know. Well, Pastor Joe was just stricken in years, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's inappropriate, that's just hot, 
while Zechariah is on duty in the temple, he's performing his task, and an angel we actually saw in the book of Daniel comes and has a visit with him. And he gives him some news. And so Zechariah is in there, and then this angel appears to him. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. It says, but the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Can I get an amen? Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a second. Even before his birth, when he's in mama's tummy, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And Zechariah said, say what? (laughs) He doubted him. And so the angel said, I tell you what, to prove it to you, you're not going to be able to speak until the boy is born. And so Zechariah comes out like, ah, you know, we would say like he'd seen a ghost, but really he'd seen an angel. And he comes out and he can't even talk. And so he's trying to write down and describe everything that's going on. And he could not speak until the baby boy, John, was born. Here's the implication. Here's the context. Zechariah and Elizabeth are both past childbearing years. Like they're too old to have kids. But they never stop praying. They prayed and they believed and they prayed and they begged God for a child. Now listen, even in today, in 2022, with modern science, with modern medicine that we have, and, and we can understand why an individual may not be able to conceive and, and have a kid, even today, with all of that knowledge we have, far too many couples know the pain of barrenness, of not being able to have a child. And it, even today, it feels like a curse. What's wrong with me? Why am I broken? Why, God, won't you hear me? Why, God, won't you give me a baby? But in Bible times, when they didn't have the knowledge and medicine that we have, that was only amplified. And it was even verbally expressed that it's a curse. Gossip circles would talk about you. Well, you must just have sin in your life. And this older couple that's well-stricken in their age, they are beyond childbearing years, but they are still praying and they're still believing. And this is what the angel said. God has heard your prayer. If John Life shows us anything, it says that it is never too late. Can I get an amen? No matter what you're going through, no matter you feel stricken well in years, no matter how long you've been in this trial, it is never too late for God to show up and move on your behalf. Science would say it's too late. Their own thoughts would say it's too late. Gossip circles might say it's too late. But you keep praying and you keep getting up and you keep serving and you keep believing. It is never too late for God to get involved. Now Elizabeth is pregnant. And that same angel, he's got to go tell somebody else about a baby. And so he goes, remember, Zach and Beth... They're well-stricken. They're on this end of the maturity spectrum. And so now the angel's gonna go talk to somebody on the whole other end of the age spectrum. And he shows up and talks to a young woman by the name of Mary who is not married. She's what we would call engaged. The term of ancient history would be betrothed, meaning the deal's been made. She knows who she's going to marry, but they, she had, he hadn't put a ring on it yet, okay? And this angel shows up and says, hey, by the way, uh, Mary... You're, 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 good. 
it's going to be weird, but you're going to have a baby. And she's like, say what? And he's like, listen, let me read it to you. Luke chapter one, verse 35. She's like, I'm not even married. And this is what the angel says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high God will overshadow you. Like you're going to have a moment where God is just going to engulf you. And when he does that, he's going to do something in your womb. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old days, being well stricken in years. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son, is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. Can I get an amen? So Gabriel tells her about her relative Elizabeth being pregnant. We're not exactly sure. Like throughout, we've talked about them being cousins and Jesus and John the Baptist being cousins. They think it ties back to Elizabeth's mom and Mary's mom being cousins. But it, this translates, it doesn't give that definitive. It just says that you're relative, okay? And then look at what happens next. By the way, you're pregnant and I'm gonna prove it because Elizabeth, you know, your old cousin that everybody been talking about and gossiping about for years that well, she must be cursed because she can't have a baby and she's beyond childbearing years. Yeah, that Elizabeth, she's pregnant, girl. Verse 39, after the angel left, a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. And at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child, he's six months in the womb, he leaped within her and Elizabeth, right there, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when the angel told Zechariah, he said he's gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born? Bada bing, bada boom, there you go. You're welcome. I don't know about you. If you are of rational mind and an angel shows up to you and you're not even married and you're young, an angel says, by the way, you're gonna get pregnant and um, it's a miracle and your child's gonna be the son of God. I, I don't know about you. I would probably wake up the next day and go, was that real or was that because I had baklava for dinner? You know what I'm saying? Like, I would question, what? I am never eating that again. I would question, and I, I think Mary, after she has this encounter with this angel, and she's like overwhelmed and, and, and like, was that, did I make, am I crazy? Did I make this up? And then she remembered that the angel said, oh, by the way, your older cousin, Elizabeth, who's beyond childbearing years, she's pregnant. And so the Bible says that she hurried. I got to go see this for myself. Here's one thing I want you to see from John's life and how John, what his whole life was about, was about pointing people to Jesus. John's calling makes an impact because even John's conception, even Elizabeth getting pregnant, John's conception was a confirmation for Mary. Girl, you're not crazy. That angel really did show up. God's really gonna overcome you. You're really gonna miraculously get pregnant. You're really gonna have a baby boy. He really is gonna be the son of God. John was still in his mother's womb and he was already doing his job. I mean, he's in there doing jumping jacks, you know what I'm saying? Because he leaped in his mama's womb. But Elizabeth's old age pregnancy is confirmation for Mary. Girl, you're not crazy. That was not a dream. You didn't make that up. Girl, you ain't tripping. What Gabriel the angel said to you is true and Elizabeth in her old age is pregnant is 
prove. Please say that makes sense. Luke chapter three tells us Jesus and John both grew up. Now they're men by the time we get to this point in the story in Luke chapter three. And John's baptizing people. Remember that whole 7 AD thing where the scepter left Israel? Israel no longer had any rule over themselves. So people are searching for a Messiah. People are looking. And some of them think because of John's story, because his mom and dad were older, his dad was a priest, they were good people of good reputation. They think because of that and because of what John's preaching in his ministry, some people start to think, are, are you Sheila? Are you the one? And John's like, no, 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 no. Not me, but I know who is. Let me show you who is. And so in Luke chapter three, verse 21, it says one day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. And as he was praying, catch this, the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit in bodily form. It's awesome. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. Close your eyes and listen to the sound of James Earl Jones. You know what I'm saying? A voice from heaven says, you are mine. I, you know, like he just hears this voice. You're my dearly beloved son and you bring me great joy. Imagine being there that day. That's awesome. So John's ministry, so John's conception was confirmation for Mary, but now John's ministry, he's baptizing people and here comes Jesus. And John, his ministry is confirmation for Jesus. And I'm gonna explain that. Because even Jesus needed some confirmation that, hey, all those stories about how your mama got pregnant, that's all real. And that's exactly what happens in this moment. Just imagine being there. Jesus goes under, he comes up, you hear James Earl Jones, this is my dearly beloved son, right? And who I'm well pleased. And yes, it's confirmation for John. It's confirmation for the people that are there and see all that take place. But it was also confirmation for Jesus. If you're still awake, say amen, because I gotta hurt your brain again. Great. We're gonna have healing line right over there after church, put it all back together. Okay, question you can answer. Who, it's not hard, who was Jesus' mama? Sometimes at church you're like, is this a quick trick question? Jesus, but that don't make no sense, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Mary, Mary was a full human. She had flesh, mom and dad. But his daddy was a different story. Remember that where it said that the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you, he's gonna overshadow you. When that happens, the Holy Spirit is going to plant a miraculous seed inside of you and you are going to become pregnant, not by doing those things that make you pregnant, but because God, so Jesus' mama was fully human, but his daddy was the Spirit of God. His daddy was God himself. You know what I'm saying? So Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully God. He, he's divine. And the human part of Jesus could be tempted. Because that's what you'll keep reading in the Gospels, you keep going, because Jesus will go out and fast in the desert for 40 days. And the human side of him would be tempted, but the God part of him would have the power to resist temptation and not give in to sin. He got that part from his daddy. The human part of Jesus wrestled with doubt. It was the God part of Jesus, the divine part of Jesus, that helped him to overcome that. What do you mean? What do you mean wrestle with doubt? In the garden, 
the night before, or it's actually the night that Jesus would be arrested and the trial process would begin, he would soon be crucified. Jesus knows what's coming. That's why he's in the garden. That's why he's praying. And part of his prayer that we have recorded, he says, God, Father, if there is any other way, could you take this cup of suffering from me? Because he knew he was about to get beaten and whipped within an inch of his life. He knew he was going to have nails driven through his hand and his feet and a spear pierced through his side. He knew he was going to have to experience the isolation and aloneness of being rejected by the presence of God. He knew he was going to have to experience death. And in that moment, his humanity said, God, is there any other way? But it was the divine part he got from his daddy that helped him get through that arrest and that being beaten and being crucified on the cross. But his humanity still experienced doubt. And it was in that moment of doubt that maybe he flashed back to when he came up out of that river and he was soaking wet with the water of baptism and he remembers, oh yeah, I heard that voice that this is my son. And I'm pleased with him. John's ministry was even confirmation for Jesus because there would be times when he was tempted by the devil. There would be times when he was facing crucifixion that he needed to be, his humanity needed to be reminded that he truly was the son of God. If that makes sense, say amen. Number three, John's gonna ask some questions. John's gonna have some doubt. And John's questions would be confirmation for the crowd. But I would even add to that that John's questions would be confirmation for his own soul. Let me tell that story too, because now we're at the end of John's life. He's not baptizing people anymore, he's in prison. He's in prison at the hands of a Roman politician. In Luke chapter seven, we've been in Luke one, Luke three, and now we're in Luke chapter seven, it tells this story. That John, who had heard the story over and over and over about how old his parents were, and his parents were beyond childbearing years. His parents weren't able to have kids, but it's never too late because God showed up. And then he remembers his cousin who he baptized, and, and then he did that the heavens opened up, and, and John heard that same voice, that Jesus is my son who I'm well pleased, gives me great joy. John had spent his life pointing people to Jesus, and that landed him in prison. And John, like every other Jew, he knew about the scepter. He knew about the prophecies. He knew about Shiloh. He knew that there would be a coming Messiah. They all just expected him to be a political Messiah. They all expected that this new Shiloh, he was gonna kick all the Romans out and he was gonna establish a new Israeli kingdom. They all were expecting a political Messiah. So John, alone, in prison, with his own thoughts that begin to turn into doubt, John has questions. Luke 7, verse 18. It says, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, two of the guys that had been with him. And he's like, all right, I need you to go to Jesus and I need you to ask him a question. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we look for someone else? 
And Jesus doesn't even answer his question. But the answer would be confirmation to the people that were standing there. Oh, that's a good question. Are you the Messiah? What's he gonna do? But also the answer would be confirmation for John's soul. It's so easy when things get hard. Trials of life when they come, when the nights get lonely, when prisons get cold, and you've given your life You've been following and pointing people to Jesus. It's so easy for the voice of the enemy to create doubt deep inside of us. Jesus, are you there? Jesus, are you the one? John knew the answer to that. John was there when Jesus was baptized. John heard the voice. John had heard the stories about how his mom and dad were almost miraculously pregnant when they were old and and how his cousin Jesus didn't even have an earthly dad. John knew the answer to that. But I thought the Messiah was going to fix all of our political problems. And yet, here I am in prison at the hands of a Roman politician. Jesus, are you the one? I've given my life for you. Jesus, do something. If you are the Messiah, could you get your cousin out of prison? Jesus, if you're the one, I feel like this life should be a little bit easier. I finally found it. Y'all know I'm a redneck from Oklahoma, right? I finally found it in the story where they're asking, Jesus, are you the one? And then Jesus says, I'll put it in the Brent Kellogg version. Hey, y'all, watch this. You know what I'm saying? Like, I finally found that story in the Bible. Like, if I translate, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Luke chapter seven, verse 21, Jesus said, hey, y'all, watch this. That's how I would translate that, right? It says, at that very time, the disciples come, and say, Jesus, John wants to know, are you the one? He doesn't say a word. It just says, at that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases and illnesses and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John to stop. I'm going to do this, and then you go tell John what you just saw. You have seen and heard the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Somebody ought to say amen. You gonna get healed. You gonna get delivered. You get to walk again. Like in that moment, Jesus just went to work. There were people that day healed so that John could have confirmation. There were people that day who were made whole so that John could have confirmation. There were evil spirits who were cast out so John could know Jesus was the one and his whole life of pointing people to Jesus, it did fulfill and serve a purpose no matter how painful it got. Things don't go the way we think we should. It is a perfect setup for Jesus to show up, amen? And some of you today find yourself in prison. Prison of your own doubt prison of your own emotions, prison of your own circumstances. Number one, it's never too late. It's never too late. And everything in you wants to be strong and everything in you wants to believe, but something on the inside of you, like John the Baptist, just wants to cry out, Jesus, are you there or not? Jesus, are you the one or not? Jesus, can you help a brother out or not? Jesus, can you fix this or not? And at that very time, somebody ought to say amen. At that very time, Jesus went to work. Listen, God may use your season of struggle to show someone else that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is a life changer. Amen, everybody? 
I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.